I am going to um, make three brief announcements. And then uh, what I want to do is pray. And then I want you to give an unbelievably loud sound of applause for our speaker this morning. He has been one of the hardest working guys I've seen in the last, I don't know, several years or the last month anyway. So he spoke to us last week and we were very blessed and we're looking forward to having Glenn here again. On my way to having him arrive up here, let me invite you to have some influence by making suggestions on next year's topic for chapel series. Okay. Normally what happens is I work on um, sort of gather ideas on, on what we might study. And then we kind of write a book. There are 12 chapters in our book. That is 12 Tuesday community chapels in the fall and then one again in the, the same again in the spring. And I kind of concoct this together. I get advice from smart people like Ray Yo and, and Mark Jonah and James Enns and everybody else who wanders around in those hallowed halls, Kelly Stefan. And I just wander in and I talk to them about it or we gather a little bit and we think about it and we try and do, do discern what God would have us study. And up until now, we've managed to find it. I have a blank slate for this fall. I have a couple of ideas, actually, that if I were to be honest. But I'm kind of wondering if you might have a book you'd like to see us write in our fall series, and then another book we might pick out from your ideas on next, next uh, spring. What we normally do is a, a, a book in the fall. I call it a book, but it's a chapel series, and then we do it again, a different uh, series. This year, we have taken the Holy Spirit for the whole year, and I hope you find that's helpful. Now, what I do also is I try and populate it with some of our own seers, the brilliant minds that teach us, and then also a local pastor and a someone who's a, a pastor from a little bit further afield, and then I probably try and find some alumni. Um, if you have someone you would like to have speak on one of these Tuesday chapels, I'd like you to add that too. So how do you how do you put these in? Just hit me with a quick email. It doesn't have to be long. I would suggest this topic, and I'd like to hear this person speak. And we'll see if we can't work toward um, you know getting all of your ideas into one series and. and, and. I did wonder about doing a hot potatoes, um, you know, sort of a, 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 a sort of a one-off each week or two or something. So that's another possibility. But anyway, your your ideas are welcome, and it's time for us to start thinking about the fall. And of course, that is my way of saying I hope you come back. Even those of you who are four-year graduates, just come back. Okay. Secondly, baptism coming up uh, the first week of um, uh, March. If you are interested, talk to Ted. He's entirely approachable. You can explore the idea with him, and you might choose to be baptized here among your peers. Now, third, third subject. Um, sometimes we hear that the world is falling apart, and it's getting worse and worse, and, you know, the, the place of the church and the place of the cross and the interest in the gospel is waning. I would like to suggest to you that is not a touch with reality. That is not the truth. But, in, in other words, there is more and more happening around the world in favor of this gospel, and the church is growing, and it is getting healthier and more and more alive. We just might not see it or recognize it. But I got this email from the Bible Society of Egypt, and I thought I'd read a few lines from it. Now, the Bible Society of Egypt... Um, is sort of under some duress, okay? I forget to, to, I don't remember where they are on the number of 
of oppressed countries or the gospel is oppressed in these countries, but they're on that short list. And yet the Bible Society stands in the face of that wind to represent the cross, the gospel, and good literature, including the Bible. So this year, for the sake of security, they moved their um, annual book fair out into the desert to a new facility that they had had built, um, they and others. And, but they, the risk was they were moving it out of Cairo. It might improve security. It might not. You can understand both sides of that. And the worst possible thing is no one would get out there. No one would show up, right? Because it would be, let's say, an hour out of the city of Cairo. Does everybody, is, are they still going to come? What a great question. Well, Ramezatala is something of a friend. He's a tremendous guy. I, I consider him God's general in Egypt. Um, and uh, so he made this courageous decision, a step of faith, and they moved out. Dear friends, he said, while most assumed that, di that the distance to the outer suburbs would place a tremendous limitation on our attendance, the turnout thus far, they were about three days into a one-week uh, fair. The turnout thus far has far surpassed any of our expectations. We are truly overwhelmed. Thousands of cars filled the desert as crowds of people stand in long, hour, in hour-long lines, both to enter the fairgrounds and then again to enter into each of the two large pavilions. Indeed, the visitors seem more intentional and coming with purpose. Also surprising is the fact that we have had far higher sales already than comparing with those first days in the same period last year in the city of Cairo, when with most of our stock this year being depleted on the first day. These past years, we have spoken of an increasing hunger and thirst for the scriptures, and we see this trend evident with serious and candid discussions going on. Let me pray, and then I'd like you to welcome Glenn. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this pause in our week, and we ask to hear from you. Speak, Lord, for we are listening. Bless Glenn with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Give it up. Well, it's wonderful to have people in the body of Christ who have the gift of encouragement, and you probably have noticed that Ted is one of those people. I came into the chapel this morning, and uh, he grabbed my hand and said, Glenn, don't screw up. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> if you had been a journalist in the first century observing the church, I doubt that one of the descriptions that you would have used would have been the word power. In our normal ways of understanding power, the church simply had none. They had no political power. They had no military power. They didn't have numerical power, they had no money, they had no resources. Power, at least in the terms that we normally see it, is not a description of the earliest church. Because the earliest church did not have power in our normal categories, the danger would have been, and for us the danger is, that we think of the church as powerless. Vera, who's my wife, has a flower garden on the south side of our house. And uh, it seems to me that each year, Vera does her best to kill it. <laughs> At the end of the year, she literally, she just burns that thing right off the top 
so that you would uh, come by our house and you would not see a thing. And then the snow comes, and as from all appearances, that garden is just as dead as a doornail, never to be revived. But when the, the, snow, the snow is not even melted before stuff is turning green, and it isn't long until the garden is higher than I am. Do not be deceived, because there is the life of growth in the garden. The church community began, grows, and continues by the power of God. The power of the church community flows from the life of Jesus through the energizing work of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians. It is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. As already said this morning, our chapel theme this year is alive in the spirit and the topic for today is the community of the spirit. Evidence of being alive in the spirit is the power of a God at work in the community of Jesus. And this morning I want to observe that evidence, first of all, in the earliest church, and then I'd like to make some applications, in fact, three applications to us as the community of Jesus here at Prairie. So let's begin by looking at the power of God in the earliest church community. We see that, and particularly I want to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, where we see Luke giving our, the history, says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So, you know, probably the background here, Jews had come from all of the regions of the known world at that time for the Feast of Pentecost. They were people who spoke different languages, they came from different places, and the only thing really that they had in common was an ancestral history that brought them together for this particular festival. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they are people who are transformed. And in that transformation, these strangers have a new and radical love for one another. It's powerful. It's tangible. It's palatable. It's the power of God that springs forth from what looked like the dead garden. And it, is, and it emanates or it comes forth from the Holy Spirit. This love was not merely a feel-good, frothy feeling towards each other, but rather a deep commitment that involved service and sacrifice on behalf of one another. The miracle that took place in Acts chapter 2 was not some politically enforced economic system to provide a social net, but rather a God-empowered generosity of spirit in which people sell their personal possessions to take care of strangers. That's weird, right? No one does that. Well, here's the, the main idea, and then I want to kind of chop it up in some smaller ideas, but here's the main one. The community of the Holy Spirit is empowered by God to genuinely love one another. 
Cruciform love is the supernatural power of God. Such love is not possible just by us pulling up our bootstraps and trying harder. This cruciform love within the community of Jesus actually images the reality of God. And according to the Lord Jesus, it is one of the most powerful and profound apologetics that God is real and that the gospel is true. Well, let me kind of just chop that up in some smaller ideas that I think uh, are important. First of all, loving community is the nature of the Trinity. It is the way that God is. Christians believe in a Trinity, one living and true God, eternally existing in three persons, who are the same in essence and co-equal in power and glory. There is eternal perfect community among the three persons of the Trinity. Just think of that. They've never argued. In the most profound sense as Trinity, and finally only as Trinity, God is loving community. God as relational love describes who God is in his very being. This theological reality, it's not just an idea. It changed Martin Luther's entire view of God from that of hating what he considered was an absolutely vengeful and wrathful God into a newfound love for a God who is love. God is loving community. Second, loving community is the created order of humanity. It's the way that you and I are. We created in the likeness and image of God are made as people who have a community gene. It is not good for us to be alone. It's not. And so humanity is created in relational connection to the eternal community of the Trinity, but we are also relationally connected to one another. And that images the God who is. Number three, sin destroys loving community. Sin is the Achilles heel. Because of sin, we see already in Genesis that there is, rather than loving community, there is shame, blame, lying, murder. It just splits community between God and us, between us and us. Humanity is at enmity with God because also, or also, it alienated. Okay, let me start again. <laughs> Ted, I screwed up. <laughs> Enmity is a direct assault on the character and design of God. Number four, Jesus prayed for loving community. We see this in his high priestly prayer. He's in the garden. John chapter 17, his prayer is, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you, that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So that's his prayer for his disciples. A little later in the passage, verse 20, 21, he prays also for us, for the church, for those that would come. And he says also, and he prays also for us, that we would be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And then he says, why? What's the reason? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, the heart cry of Jesus just prior to his death is that his followers would live in loving community. And according to his prayer, 
It is a convincing proof when we do so that he is alive and that the gospel is true. You see, community is not merely a design or a desirable human experience for us to live in, but it is the show and tell. It is the show and tell of the reality of God and the gospel. Number five, the cross work of Jesus makes restoration of loving community, the restoration of what was broken in sin, it restores it. And so Ephesians chapter 2 is just one of the passages that describes that, where Paul says, For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. You see, the work of the cross directly addresses the assault of sin on loving community. Jesus Christ, Son of God, born, lived among us, died, rose from the dead to restore community with God and other humans. The Bible often refers to this in the New Testament as koinonia, or it is uh, sometimes translated in our English version as fellowship. And it, it says that we have in common the Lord Jesus. Or to put it this way more precisely, we are not a community simply. We are not a community merely because of the fact that we have a similar interest in Jesus. We are a community because we share a similar life, which is Jesus. And this brings us, I think, again to Acts chapter 2, where the earliest church lives together in loving community. In the book of Acts, we see the prayer of Jesus being answered. We see the work of Jesus being lived out. And as they serve and sacrifice to meet each other's needs, it is not simply a humanitarian effort. It is not, Acts 2 is not a bunch of do-gooders. It is the power of God springing forth. God's love, according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The loving community of the church, even in its imperfection, and I want to underline that, even in its imperfection, is proof of the supernatural power of God infused by the Holy Spirit of God, something that is not possible in human effort. This love images the very nature of God to the world and is the apologetic that God is alive and that the gospel is true. And so we see in verse 47 of Acts chapter 2, the Lord added daily those who were being saved. So powerful was the witness of this self-sacrificial love by early Christians that in the first three centuries, the church grew at really an astonishing rate. They turned the, world, the ancient world right side up. Here we have in the power of God through the loving community of the Spirit and uh, According to our theme, when we are alive in the Spirit, there is a genuine transformation in the community of Jesus that evidences the power of God at work. Well, that's the early church. And so this morning I said I wanted to give you at least three applications of that theology, of that reality to our own community here at Three Hills. And they're very simple you could have described them yourself, but nonetheless, here I go. 
Number one, those who are alive in the Spirit will engage in the community of Jesus. This is really underlining a point that Dr. Enns already eloquently made in the series. So I just want to, I actually just want to underline that again. Protestants and particularly evangelicals have emphasized a personal Christianity. A personal relationship to Jesus. Now that is important and I believe a correct theology, but currently we read that theology through a distorted lens of 21st century individualism. It leaves us, I believe, with a false interpretation that Christianity is private, Jesus and me, Lone Ranger, superhero, standalone, or if you prefer Simon and Garfunkel, I am a rock, I am an island. They aren't the best interpreters of Scripture, but on that point. <laughs> one of the results, I think there are many, but one of the results, I think, of this false interpretation is churchless Christianity. Millions of self-professing believers are saying that they are leaving the church, not because they want to abandon faith, but rather in order to keep faith. They contend that the church is not only irrelevant, not only out of date, but rather it's detrimental to faith. And therefore, in order to keep faith, it's necessary to leave. To contend that the church is detrimental is an argument that we have to take up with Jesus. Does Jesus think the church is important? The church is his divine idea. Jesus founded the church, he bought the church, he builds the church, he dwells in it. The church is the called out and called together community of his people. Every true believer is baptized into the church by his Holy Spirit. It is his body through which he has decided to work in this time of history. Or perhaps you could argue or want to argue that the church is so messed up that you can't be part of that mess. In other words, the church was good for the first century, but it's like not okay for the 21st century. Well, if you read the New Testament, even casually, it is shockingly clear that the church has always been messed up. And that being messed up in the, is not new to the 21st century. Most of the letters by Peter by Paul and John, are primarily to deal with messiness in the church. But I want to say this, the church's imperfection never translates, never translates as unimportant or irrelevant. The Christian faith as presented in the Bible is personal, but it is anything but private. To be alive in the Spirit is to live in and be engaged in the community of Jesus. You are not designed to be Christian individualistically any more than you can be a one-person hockey team, even if you're McDavid or a one-person orchestra. Because I have worked most of my life in the student development area at Prairie, I am at least somewhat aware of how imperfect our Prairie community is. For my DMIN project, I studied the spiritual formation of first-year students at Prairie. What helps them? 
what hinders them in their spiritual growth. And again and again, I heard exactly the same message. And it was repeated so that I had to get it. I couldn't miss it. And they talked about relationships. Relationships with their peers. Relationships with the staff. Relationships with one another that were critical and important and the most significant thing in terms of their Christian growth. As imperfect as we are, our community is a place of acceptance, a place of care, of concern, of giving, of receiving, of forgiveness, of honesty, of healing, and of helping. Number two, in application of the community that I want, or being alive in the spirit this morning, is we will love others in the community of Jesus. Jesus said this, by, all, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It's very clear, and John similarly, it's, it's not my love for the people outside of the community. The issue is, do I love the people within the community? It's not merely a human love, rather it's a cruciform love for one another. It's not merely how do I feel or even the words that I speak, but rather a sacrifice for the service of others. It's actually laying down in order that I can give life to others. Last Friday, one of the impact leaders came to my office and we were discussing his academic future. As we had that conversation, I actually began another conversation. So it was a sideline conversation. But I posed this question. How is impact leading going? He didn't even think. He just, his, without hesitation, he replied this way, at least more or less, these words. He said, I have a great group. One of the blessings of being old like me is you, you wake up at night. And you are a lot of, I have a lot of awake time. <clears throat> and it was this conversation that I had had earlier the day that captured my attention. And I've been thinking a lot about it. You see, my question was, and opened the door for him to tell me all the problems of being an impact leader. The stress, the late nights, the faults of the guys in his group, the work and the concerns. That's what I was kind of asking. Well, he just bypassed all of that. Like that was not even, Glenn, you don't understand. You don't get the, you don't even get it. Because his response, I have, well, I have a great group, wasn't, wasn't about that. His response illustrated rather that he did not see the men in his group as a burden. He saw them as his brothers. He was now able to see that the work of caring for the group was just part of being a brother, and he holds those people in his heart. His response was about the power of the Holy Spirit springing up in love for one another. I believe a cruciform love. John says it this way, if anyone says, I love God, yet he hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thirdly, 
in application to our own community. Those who are alive in the Spirit will not grieve the Spirit. It seems to me that in the 21st century, many Christians have decided that though sin may be wrong, we have the constitutional right to be wrong. If I sin behind closed doors, it is my own business and it's none of yours. Thank you very much. My sin may be wrong, but if it is private, and as long as it hurts nobody else, my sin becomes acceptable. Our sins may be done in private, but sin is never personal. Each and every time I sin, my sin affects the body. Because the community is so intimately related to one another, my sin never only affects me. When we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit and we hurt our brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the passage uh, on the, I think we'll have it up, Ephesians chapter 4. This is the passage that deals with the grieving of the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice surrounding the passage about grieving are a whole bunch of the kinds of sins by which we hurt one another. Telling lies, anger, corrupting talk, bitterness, slander, malice, wrath. All of these things. You cannot be fully controlled by the Holy Spirit and at the same time sinning against the community of Jesus. And so when we are alive in the Spirit, we choose not to sin against the body of Jesus. Let me conclude. Again, by an illustration from our own community here. When President Maxwell began thinking about this chapel series, about Alive in the Spirit, it was very obvious to me that he had a deep desire for us to see the power of the Spirit manifest on our campus. It spurred my own wondering about what does that power look like? What does it look like when we allow the Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants? As I've thought about that question, I have become convinced that in this last decade, I'm sorry, I leak a lot. I, I've, witnessed, I've witnessed the genuine working of the Spirit on our campus in a most significant way. A decade ago, our staff environment was toxic. Division, strife, anger, and all sorts of nasty. That's not just my opinion. Because at the time, we, uh, as a staff, completed a survey done by a company called Best Christian Workplace. The survey re results demonstrate the workplace culture or the workplace environment. At that time, the best Christian workplace found that Prairie College was the worst Christian workplace. Well, it wasn't quite the worst, but I can tell you that it was over on that end of the spectrum. About three or four years ago, we completed the survey again, and remarkably, we were recognized as a best Christian workplace, albeit we just made it in by the hair of our chinny-chin-chin, but we did make it. And then we did it again last year, and we were among the best of the best Christian workplaces. What happened? 
What happened that changed so dramatically the culture at Prairie? Well, certainly from a human perspective, we're thankful for President Maxwell's courageous leadership to affect change in our culture, and I don't want to minimize that. In fact, I want to say thank you for it. But I also, and I think he, if he were here today, if he were up here today, he would acknowledge that there's been something that's deeper and profound that has been part of what has been going on at Prairie. Because when we were still a, a worst Christian workplace, we began to pray, God, would you give us unity? God, would you give us harmony? God specializes in that for many of the reasons that I've already indicated this morning. And when we invited the Holy Spirit to move, it should be no surprise that the community of Jesus was empowered by God to genuinely begin to love one another imperfectly, but nonetheless in real. This is the power of God evidenced by the love of God poured out by the Holy Spirit of God in the community of Jesus. Last Wednesday, in our day of prayer, we encouraged you to write a request on your card and a request that only could be answered by God, something that could not be done by human effort. We want to watch God's answers, and when you see him answer, I encourage you to put the answer on the card and put it on our board so that we can uh, give glory to God and also at the same time evidence and witness his working in our community. And I just this morning want to thank God for this decade of seeing him alive in our community. And my prayer is that God would pour out his spirit in our prairie community so that we might grow an even deeper, more cruciform love. So that we would image God so that his gospel would be clear in our lives. Let's pray together. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for pouring out the love of Jesus in our lives. And we ask that you would do that in an even deeper way. Not for our honor, but for yours, so that others might see that you are in fact real and the gospel is true. In this day, grant us grace to love one another sincerely. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.